I'm not following that. I'm going to have you guys uh, greet each other. Here's what I'd like you to share in just the next minute or two. Um, it's summertime, so would you rather get Coors Custard or Rita's Water Ice? Stand and greet somebody nearby. Coors Custard. Rita's Water Ice. <laughs> I'm a custard guy. What I have you? no idea. I really? Yeah. Oh, man. I am all about ice cream. All right, I'm going to have to try the custard. On, are you kidding me? On the boardwalk, you haven't done it? No. Oh, girl. Okay. Make your bucket list. There it is. <laughs> all right. I'm wondering who won. Was it Coors or was it Rita's? <laughs> All right, so here's another question I have for you. Have you ever met anybody who thought they were God? Huh. I went to college with several guys who thought they were God's gift to women. Um, that's a little different. I was a social work major, and so I had opportunities to uh, be in places with um, mentally unhealthy people, struggling people. And one of the uh, things that often happens uh, with somebody who is mentally unhealthy is they can become delusional, and it's not unusual for that person to begin to think that they are a god. Throughout history, there are those military and... Um, political leaders who are raised to the levels of deity. So uh, Roman emperors, for example, were uh, at some points in history viewed as uh, deity, gods. In modern history, same thing with some dictators. Believe it or not, um, Joseph Stalin, even though the USSR was officially um, atheist, Joseph Stalin's uh, propaganda machine kind of tried to deify him. There was a painting of Stalin sitting at the table like the Last Supper. And Stalin was at the center and behind him uh, in a John the Baptist kind of figure was Lenin trying to deify this guy. It's what dictators do. They, they use fear and power and control and, and faith. Understand the uh, the what? <coughs> Excuse me. The last three dictators in North Korea, the current one, and his dad and granddad are being kind of deified in that culture. So, political and and uh, military leaders. What about religious leaders? Certainly, lots and lots of religious leaders throughout the ages who have claimed to be God or a Messiah in our most modern American history. To Notorious examples of that in recent memory. Jim Jones, the People's Temple in Guyana, and uh, that tragedy of nearly a thousand people, including children, losing their lives. Um, and then David Koresh uh, and uh, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. And again, uh, nearly a hundred people losing their lives, including children, um, led by a person who claimed to be the Messiah. 
So we have lots of examples of people in our history who convince themselves and convince others that they are a deity. So we're talking about Jesus, and he's that guy, and things that Jesus said that were troubling, disturbing uh, to people then and continue to be now. One of the things that Jesus said was that he was the Messiah. He was God incarnate. And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the time, were skeptical and understandably so, right? Because it wasn't unusual for people in the first century to lay claim to this idea of deity, of being the Messiah. So what was it about Jesus that was different? Why why should we believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, given all of that history? So there's lots of reasons, there's lots of things that distinguish Jesus. Jesus, for example, was fulfilling scores, if not hundreds, of prophecies that were recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures, including things that he would have had no control over. So it wasn't like he read it and he was going to try and fill it in. There were so many of those things that he had no control over, like being born in Bethlehem. like being in the line of David. So he was fulfilling the prophecies about who the Messiah was going to be. He healed people. Countless numbers of people. Crippled people and uh, blind people. Lepers would come to him and he would heal them. He raised people from the dead. He had this power to to do that. He had power over nature, right? Jesus had power over nature. He spoke and a storm calmed. He walked on water. He changed water into wine. Jesus had power over nature and over evil. He called out demons and cast them out. One of the things uh, about Jesus that is remarkable, that is different than any other, was that he did not sin. I'm going to talk about that in, in a minute, but it's one of the distinguishing things about Jesus from anyone else who, who claimed to be a God or a Messiah. He did not sin. And then, of course, ultimately, he was raised from the dead. He was executed on a Roman cross, put into a tomb, was there for three days, and rose from the dead. And over 500 witnesses saw him in the time between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Jesus, unlike all of the others who have come claiming to be a God or a Messiah, did not use or abuse people. I think one of the marks of these false messiahs who have come along is they've always been about using and abusing people for their own purposes, to get money, to get power. They use people and they abuse people. And Jesus 
never did that. So going back to this idea of Jesus never sinning, you know, he's, it's not that he wasn't tempted by sin, because he certainly was. Jesus was tempted by sin. The difference between Jesus and us is that he felt the full force of temptation because he didn't give in to it. We give in to it, and so we don't even feel the full force. But Jesus never did. He did not sin. In Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter, um, I, I want to pull out some scriptures from, from that chapter this morning to just share with us as we think about this idea, this truth that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God incarnate. So Jesus, um, this is early in his ministry, and uh, he has been baptized by John. The Holy Spirit has filled him. He has gone out into the wilderness or the desert where he spent the next 40 days fasting. 40 days fasting. I was thinking about this. The longest fast I ever did on purpose, right, like as a spiritual discipline, was probably 30 hours. And I was miserable. I mean, it was rough. Right? Have you ever fasted? If, if fasting is not a spiritual discipline you've ever tried, um, it, it's an important discipline. Um, and uh, so typically for me, a fast is 24 hours. And I do it the cheating kind of way. You know, like I have, um, I, I skip uh, dinner and breakfast and lunch and then break the fast at dinner. So I'm asleep for eight of those hours what I'm saying, right? Um, and I wake up with a headache. So Jesus went 40 days, 40 days, 40 nights with no food. So that has, that begins to have consequences on the body, right? You are a very weakened state when you haven't eaten for that long a period of time. So in this physically weakened state, Jesus is now being tempted by Satan. And that's what the uh, Gospel of Luke, the fourth chapter, opens up talking about. And so Satan appears to Jesus in this weakened state, and the first temptation is an obvious one, right? Hey, you've got the power to take care of yourself. So why don't you see that rock over there? Why don't you turn that into bread? Wouldn't that be amazing? We're going to have bread in a few moments. It's from Panera's. It's amazing. <laughs> You're going to love communion this morning. Imagine what Jesus could do if he decided he wanted to make bread. He's in this weakened condition. He's starving. And the temptation is use your power for yourself, for your own purposes. And Jesus refuses, right? He quotes scripture to Satan and says, man doesn't live by bread alone. Okay? So that's the first temptation. There's two more. And I think these two next temptations get at the heart, if you will, the core of our human sin nature. They really kind of capture our human sin nature because... The two temptations are, 
One, to be God, and two, to control God. All right? So I want to take a look at them. We'll, uh, I'll actually read these. So this is the second temptation, beginning with verse 5. It says this, Then the devil took him, Jesus, and revealed to him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give them all to you if you will worship me. And Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. All right, so here's this first temptation, or the second temptation. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a kind of an epic scene, right? I, I don't know how it played out, but somehow they're like hovering over and seeing all of the kingdoms and the glory of all of the kingdoms in a moment's time. It's like time stands still and they're, they're able to see in high def the kingdoms and the glory of the... In other words, they're seeing the best that the world has to offer. So they're seeing, you know, the, the gleaming cities and they're seeing the, the sprawling farms and orchards and cattle and the lakes and oceans and all of the wealth and the beauty that is on the earth. And the temptation is... You can have it all. You can have it all. And all you have to do is worship me. In essence, you know, sell your soul to the devil. Now, I know a lot of people that have sold their souls for a whole lot less than that. Right? A whole lot less than that. But the temptation here is... You can be God of it all. You can be ruler of it all. You can have all of the wealth and all of the power and all of the notoriety, all of the fame, all of the control. You can have it all. And all you have to do is worship me. That's part of the temptation of the sin nature, right? Part of that temptation is you will be God. You don't need God. You can be God. You can live life on your own terms, live life by your own rules. You can be God. <clears throat> and Jesus Again, kind of turning to the scriptures, says, you worship God alone. You worship God alone. You can't worship God and these other things. You can't dismiss God and live life on your own terms. So then the second, or the, I'm sorry, the third temptation Starting with verse 9, it says, Then the devil took, uh, 
took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if, if you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And, you, and he will hold you up with their hands. And you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Right? So he takes him out, takes him to Jerusalem, highest point of the temple, and says, in essence, prove it. Prove, prove your God is, is God. Prove that you're the Messiah. Throw yourself off. Because if it's true, you won't be hurt. Right? Testing God. Really, it's about controlling God. We don't know anything about that, do we? Right? Controlling God? No. God, if you just do this, I'll do this. Or, God, I'm going to do this, and I expect that you're going to do that. Right? It's as old as humanity. It's as old as sin that we're going to somehow manipulate and control God. Get God to do what we want God to do. I had a good friend decades ago who um, got into trouble financially. And he ended up with more bills than he had cash. So he got out his checkbook and he wrote checks to all of the places he owed money knowing he didn't have the cash to cover it. And he prayed over these checks. He said, God, I have faith in you. God, I believe in you. I believe, God, that you have all of the wealth of the world, that you can cover these checks. And then he went around and told everybody he knew what he was doing. Right? And the God, God is going to cover my debt, because I believe, I have faith, and I'm, you know, I'm confident. It was this, you know, ridiculous manipulation, attempt at manipulating God, right? Sent out the checks, and guess what happened? <laughs> they were bouncing all over town, right? It sounds silly, but it's this idea of we're going to manipulate God. We're going to get God to do for us what we want God to do for us. Because if you want me to believe God, you'll do these things. So this sin nature that we have, Jesus wasn't controlled by. Jesus did not sin. He was the Messiah. He is God incarnate. He was tempted by sin. He felt the full force of sin and temptation. 
but never gave in. He knew no sin, which made him uniquely qualified to become sin for us. So that raises the question, you know, if Jesus didn't come for himself, if he didn't come to use people and abuse people and all of those things that others have come to do, why did he come? Why did Jesus come? So again, as we're continuing on in the fourth chapter of Luke, he tells us why he came. So, picking up at the uh, 16th verse, here's what it says. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to get the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All of the eyes of the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. This scripture that you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. So Jesus says, this is why I've come. I'm I'm fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. I've come to set captives free. I've come to free the oppressed. I've come to give sight to the blind. I've come for the poor. Which all sounds great, right? But what if you're not poor or blind or oppressed? What's the good news for us? Well, of course, Jesus here is talking about all of us because It's our spiritual condition. We are all spiritually poor. We are all oppressed by sin. We are all captives of sin. We are all blinded by sin. And so Jesus came to set us free to make us right before a holy God. So all of that oppression and all of that bondage that comes from sin, Jesus came 
to bring us the good news of the kingdom. That we no longer have to live under the bondage of that sin. Ravi Zacharias, you guys know Ravi? If you don't, you ought to check him out. Uh, go to YouTube and type in Ravi Zacharias. He is a scholar and an apologist making uh, logical arguments uh, for matters of uh, the faith. And uh, I love what Ravi had to say on this. Um, listen to the, what, what he's, he wrote. The Christian faith, simply stated, reminds us that our fundamental problem is not moral. Rather, our fundamental problem is spiritual. It is not just that we are immoral, but that morality alone cannot bridge what separates us from God. Here lies the cardinal difference between the moralizing religions and Jesus offer to us. Jesus doesn't offer to make bad people good but to make dead people alive. Isn't that good stuff? Right? So the Bible says that we are dead in our sin. It's not just that we're bad people. It's not just that we need to become more moral. It's that we are separated from our Creator. And that separation, that sin, drives us to behaviors and to actions and to attitudes that keep us separate from God, that do damage to our souls, do damage to our relationships with one another. And we are powerless over sin. Unlike Jesus, we give in time and time and time again. But Jesus came to set us free, to forgive our sins and to lead us in a new way of doing life. So late in my teen years, or later in my, in my late teen years, I made a decision to ask Jesus to forgive my sin and to be the leader of my life. And it changed everything for me. Not in an instant, but it really just changed the direction, the course of my life. And I've been walking in that faith all of these decades later. A few decades. I'm in my 30s. <laughs> what? Was that funny? <laughs> um... And I find that that prayer that I prayed as a teenager, I pray still today. Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. Be the leader of my life. Guide me in the ways everlasting. And so this morning, if that's a prayer that you have never prayed, 
I want to encourage you to pray that prayer this morning because it begins a journey, it begins a direction for your life that is life-giving. As you give yourself over to the Messiah, to God incarnate, to Jesus. If that's a prayer that you have prayed in the past, let me remind you of the good news that you are living into. Jesus brought us the gospel, the good news, the hope that we are no longer bound by sin, that we live a new life, an abundant life, and that we live an eternal life. Jesus overcame death, his own and ours. It was so important, his sacrifice, that he wanted his followers to never forget what it was about. And so he gave them this simple illustration that believers have been practicing for 2,000 years all around the globe in every language, in every culture. The reminder of Jesus' sacrifice. And so we're told in Scripture that we should, um, in coming to this time, that we should take a moment and reflect on our continuing struggle with sin. And to confess. Prior to taking communion, to confess our sins, those ways in which we try to be God, live life on our own terms, or those times that we try to manipulate God to get things you know, to go our way, to have God do things the way we want them done. And whatever that looks like in our lives, to confess those to God. So I'm going to give just a few moments for you to do some personal confession, and then we'll uh, close that time out by a, a corporate prayer of confession that's up on the screen. So let's pray. Lord, your word tells us that you are more anxious to forgive than we are to ask for forgiveness. But in asking, you forgive our sins and remember them no more. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Lord, even as you have heard us pray our personal prayers, continue to hear us as together we pray this prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not with our whole heart or our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. Forgive us, we pray. And to be our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so with his friends in that upper room 2,000 years ago, after they had prayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and saying, Take and eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. As oft as you shall do this, do so 
in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of sin. And likewise, after they had eaten the bread, Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and drink, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As oft as you shall drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Amen. And so the table of the Lord is open. It's his table. It doesn't require membership in this or any church. The only requirement is a desire to live in right relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus. And through that faith, the desire to live in right relationships with one another. So if that's where your heart is, the table of the Lord is open to you. You'll come forward, you'll be handed a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup and eat, and then return to your seat. Um, if for any reason you're unable to come forward but would like to receive communion, if you would just let us know, we'll be happy to come and serve you at your seat. At this time, after we are served each other, the table of the Lord will be open.